Hey, nature-led people, this is Kathleen Lockyer with the newly renamed Pace of Nature podcast, formerly Nothing Tame. Pace of Nature speaks to research that is currently being done about the protective and compensatory experiences of childhood. And although nature isn't named as one of those experiences, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt from my own life that nature is the very thing, not just nature, but my connection, my relationship with nature, my deep, deep connection with nature since the time I can remember as a child is the thing that protected me and compensated for so many adversities of childhood and adulthood. And so I invite you to be part of these conversations where I help unpack what nature connection is, how valuable it is to us as human beings, to our infants, to our young children, to our teenagers, to our adults, to our elders, and to those as they lay dying. I've witnessed it all. I've heard the stories. I've experienced many different scenarios where nature has served as a protective experience, as a compensatory experience, and as a developmental experience. And I hope you'll join me in learning more about the pace of nature as I will do until the end of my days. So I hope you enjoy the podcast today. Today's episode is a special episode with a story by Gabriel Garcia Marquez called The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World. And this story is an essential story for this time of year as we move into the time of the ancestors and celebrating the ancestors. Many people celebrate Halloween, Day of the Dead, All Saints Day, Samhain, and a number of other traditions around the world. And so this story really is one that helps bring forward all the pieces of life and death and grieving and celebrating and ancestors and those who are still living and how all those things come together. So I hope you enjoy this version of the story again by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. A wise man named Paul Raphael from the Ojibwe people in northern Michigan shared with me that some stories are not stories for us. They come through us and they're meant to be shared with all people because there's something in them for all of us. And I believe this is one of those stories. When I first heard this story, it was as if I'd been there. It was so deeply resonant in my being. And so I offer this story to you today by Gabriel Garcia Marquez called The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World. And the story begins with the children. The children of a small fishing village were playing on the beach when one of them looked out and spotted a pirate ship. A pirate ship! He yelled, and one of the girls standing next to him looked, bringing her hand to her forehead. A pirate ship! A pirate ship has sails and masts. There's no sails and masts on that ship. It's not a ship at all. It's a whale. 
and all the children jumped up and down, a whale, a whale, and they waited for it to wash up on shore. And when it did, they pushed and pulled and dragged and got it farther up on the beach so that they could remove all the seaweed and the jellyfish and the remains of fish and bones. And it was only then that they saw it was not a whale at all. It was a drowned man. So, as children do, they played with him all afternoon, burying him in the sand, digging him up again. When an adult came by and spread the alarm in the village. The men who came down and carried him to the nearest house noticed that he weighed more than any dead man they'd ever known, almost as much as a horse. And they said to each other, well, that maybe he'd been floating too long and the water had gotten into his bones. When they laid him on the floor, they said he'd been taller than all other men because there was barely enough room for him in the house. But they thought that maybe the ability to keep on growing after death was part of the nature of certain drowned men. He had the smell of the sea about him, and only his shape gave one to suppose that it was the corpse of a human being, because the skin was covered with a crust of mud and scales. They didn't even have to clean off his face to know that the dead man was a stranger. The village was made up of only 20-odd wooden houses that had stone courtyards with no flowers and were spread about the end of a desert-like cape. There was so little land on the cape that mothers always went about with the fear that the wind would carry off their children and the few dead that the years had caused among the village had to be thrown off the cliffs. But the sea was calm and bountiful, and all the men fit into only seven boats. So when they found the drowned man, they simply just had to look around at one another and see that they were all there. That night, they didn't go to work out at sea. The men went to the other villages and inquired if the missing man was from other villages. The women stayed behind to care for the drowned man. They took the mud off with grass swabs. They removed the underwater stones entangled in his hair and scraped off the crust of mud with tools used for scaling fish. As they were doing that, they noticed that the vegetation on him came from faraway oceans and deep water and that his clothes were in tatters as if he had sailed through labyrinths of coral. They noticed, too, that he bore his death with pride, for he did not have the lonely look of other drowned men who came out of the sea or that haggard, needy look of men who drowned in rivers. But only when they finished cleaning him off did they become aware of the kind of man he was. And it left them breathless. Not only was he the tallest, strongest, most virile, and best-built man they'd ever seen. But even though they were looking at him, there was no room in their imagination for such a man. They couldn't find a bed in the village large enough to lay him on, and there wasn't a table solid enough to use for his wake. The tallest men's holiday pants wouldn't fit him, nor the fattest ones. Sunday shirts, nor the shoes of one with the biggest feet. 
fascinated by his huge size and his beauty. The women then decided to make him some pants from a large piece of sail and a shirt from some bridal linen so that he would continue through his death with dignity. As they sewed, sitting in a circle and gazing at the corpse between stitches, it seemed to them that the wind had never been so steady, nor the sea so restless as on that night, and they supposed that the change had something to do with the dead man. They thought that if a magnificent man had lived in the village, his house would have had the widest doors, the highest ceiling, and the strongest floor. His bed would have been made from midship frame held together by iron bolts, and his wife would have been the happiest woman. They thought that he would have had so much authority that he could have drawn fish out of the sea simply by calling their names, and that he would have put so much work into his land that springs would have burst forth from among the rocks so that he would have been able to plant flowers on the cliffs. Secretly, they compared him to their own men, thinking that for all their lives, theirs were incapable of doing what he could do in one night, and they ended up dismissing their men deep in their hearts as the weakest, meanest, and most useless creatures on earth. They were wandering through that maze of fantasy when the oldest woman, who as the oldest, looked upon the drowned man with more compassion than passion, and she sighed. Ah, he has the face of someone called Esteban. It was true. Most of them had only to take another look at him to see that he couldn't have any other name. The more stubborn among them, who were the youngest, still lived for a few hours with the illusion that when they put his clothes on and he lay among the flowers in patent leather shoes, his name might be Laturo. But it was a vain illusion. There hadn't been enough canvas. The poorly cut and worse sewn pants were too tight, and the hidden strength of his heart popped the buttons on his shirt. After midnight, the whistling of the wind died down and the sea fell into its Wednesday drowsiness. The silence put an end to any last doubts. He was Esteban. The women who had dressed him, who had combed his hair, had cut his nails and shaved him, were unable to hold back a shudder of pity when they had to resign themselves to dragging his large body along the ground. It was then that they understood how unhappy he must have been with that huge body since it bothered him even after death. They could see him in life, condemned to going through doors sideways, cracking his head on crossbeams, remaining on his feet during visits, not knowing what to do with his soft pink sea lion hands while the lady of the house looked for her most resistant chair and begged him, frightened to death, sit here. Esteban, please. And he, leaning up against the wall, smiling, don't bother, ma'am, I'm fine where I am. His heels raw and his back roasted from having done the same thing so many times when he paid a visit. Don't bother, ma'am. I'm fine where I am. Just to avoid the embarrassment of breaking up the chair 
and never knowing, perhaps, that the ones who said, Don't go, Esteban. At least wait till the coffee's ready. Were the ones who later on would whisper, The big boob finally left. How nice the handsome fool has gone. That was what the women were thinking, beside the body, a little before dawn. Later, when they covered his face with a handkerchief so that the light wouldn't bother him, he looked so forever dead, so defenseless, so much like their men, that the first furrows of tears opened their hearts. It was one of the younger ones who began the weeping. The others joined and went from sighs to wails, and the more they sobbed, the more they felt like weeping, because the drowned man was becoming all the more Esteban for them. And so they wept so much, for he was the most destitute, most peaceful, and most obliging man on earth. Poor Esteban! So when the men returned with the news that the drowned man was not from the neighboring villages either, the women felt an opening of jubilation in the midst of their tears. Praise the Lord, they sighed. He's ours. The men thought the fuss was just womanly frivolity. The men were tired from all the nighttime inquiries in the neighboring villages, and all they wanted was to get rid of the bother of the newcomer once and for all, before the sun grew strong on that arid, windless day. They improvised a stretcher with the remains of four masts and gaffs, tying it together with rigging so that it would bear the weight of the body until they reached the cliffs. They wanted to tie the anchor from a cargo ship to him so that he would sink easily into the deepest waves where fish were blind and bad currents wouldn't bring him back to shore as had happened with other bodies. But the more they hurried, the more the women thought of ways to waste time. They walked about like startled hens, pecking with the sea charms on their breasts, some interfering with one side to put a scapular of the good wind on the drowned man, and some on the other side to put a wrist compass on him, and after a great deal of, get away from there, woman, stay out of the way, look, you almost made me fall on top of the dead man, the men began to feel mistrust in their livers, and they started grumbling about why so many main altar decorations for a stranger. Because no matter how many nails and holy water jars he had on him, the sharks would chew him all the same. But the women kept piling on their junk relics, running back and forth, stumbling while they released in sighs what they didn't in tears. So that the men finally exploded with, Since when has there ever been such a fuss over a drifting corpse, a drowned nobody, a piece of cold Wednesday meat? One of the women, mortified by so much lack of care, then removed the handkerchief from the dead man's face, and the men were left breathless, too. He was Esteban. It wasn't necessary to repeat it for them to recognize him. Even if they'd been told Sir Walter Raleigh, even they might have been impressed with his gringo accent, the macaw on his shoulder, his cannibal-killing blunderbuss. But there could only be one Esteban. One Esteban in the world, and there he was, stretched out like a sperm whale, shoeless, wearing the pants of an undersized child, and with those stony nails that had to be cut with a knife. 
they only had to take the handkerchief off his face to see that he was ashamed. It wasn't his fault that he was so big or heavy or handsome. (laughs) And if he had known that this was going to happen, he would have looked for a more discreet place to drown in. Seriously, I even would have tied the anchor around my neck and staggered off a cliff in order not to be upsetting people now with this Wednesday dead body, as you people say, in order not to be bothering anyone with this filthy piece of cold meat that doesn't have anything to do with you. There was so much truth in his manner that even the most mistrustful men, the ones who felt the bitterness of endless nights at sea and that their women would tire of dreaming about them and begin to dream of drowned men. Even they and others who were harder still shuddered in the marrow of their bones at Esteban's sincerity. And that was how they came to hold the most splendid funeral they could ever conceive of for an abandoned drowned man. Some women went to get flowers in the neighboring villages and returned with other women who could not believe what they'd been told. And those women, after seeing Esteban, went back for more flowers when they saw the dead man. And they brought more and more until there were so many flowers and so many people that it was hard to walk about. At the final moment, it pained them to return him to the waters as an orphan. And so... They chose a father and a mother among the best people of the village and aunts and uncles and cousins so that through Esteban, all the inhabitants of the village became kinsmen. Some sailors heard the weeping from a distance and went off course and people heard of one who had himself tied himself to the main mast remembering ancient fables about sirens. While everyone fought for the privilege of carrying him on their shoulders along the steep escarpment by the cliffs, men and women became aware for the first time of the desolation of their streets, of the dryness in their courtyards, the narrowness of their dreams, as they faced the splendor and beauty of their drowned man. They let him go without an anchor, so that He could come back if he wished and whenever he wished. And they all held their breath for the fraction of centuries the body took to fall into the abyss. They didn't need to look at one another to realize that they were no longer all present, that they never would be. But they also knew that everything would be different from then on, that their houses would have wider doors, higher ceilings, stronger floors, so that Esteban's memory could go everywhere without bumping into beams, and so that no one in the future would dare whisper, the big boob finally died, too bad, the handsome fool has finally died, because they were going to paint their houses bright colors to make Esteban's memory eternal, and they were going to break their backs digging for springs among the stones, planting flowers on the cliffs, so that in future years at dawn, the passengers on great liners would awaken, suffocated by the smell of gardens on the high seas, and the captain would have to come down from the bridge in his dress uniform, with his pole star and his row of war medals, and pointing to the promontory of roses on the horizon, he would say in 14 languages, Look there! 
Or the wind is so peaceful now that it's gone to sleep beneath the beds over there, my friends, over there, where the sun's so bright that the sunflowers don't even know which way to turn. Yes, over there. That, that, my friends, is Esteban's village.